We've been going through the book of First Peter, which is written by Peter to a bunch of Christians who had been dispersed over a land area called Asia. It's modern day Turkey. These Christians that he's writing to have been undergoing a lot of persecution. We've talked about how back in that day, the Romans, they would persecute so badly the Christians that sometimes the emperor Nero would light up his parties, not with candles, but by taking Christians, putting them on stakes and lighting them on fire. Um, there's pictures depicting back in that day where they would throw them in the Colosseum, the Christians. And then there in the pictures, there are artwork of wild beasts devouring their faces. Those were the types of persecutions that the Christians were undergoing during that time as they were being persecuted for the very same thing that you and I say we believe here today, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He died for our sins and resurrected and, and then he ascended on high and he's in control of all things. That's the story that we believe. And yet the Christians that Peter's writing to are being persecuted for believing those things and having those things being lived out in life. And so Peter is writing to these believers saying, keep your eye on what is precious. Now, through this book, we've been beginning to notice that there's several things that Peter says is precious, that are precious. Last week, we saw that what is precious is the faith that God's given you, just the opportunity to say, I trust you. And the opportunity then when trials come, that that faith that he has in you, that he started in you is real. It's proving to be real. And through those trials, he actually uses that to grow your faith so you would trust him more and more and ever more as he is coming. And so that faith is precious. And today we're going to take a, a examine something else that's precious. It's involved in the same thing, but, but we need to go to the word to, to let us see what that is. So here again, I want you to look for what is precious. We're starting in verse 13 of chapter one in first Peter, it says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let me just pause here for a moment, because in my version here, it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. The little literal Greek that's being used right there says, says, gird the loins of your mind. Okay, in the King James Version, it actually says that gird the loins of your mind. And that's weird. You know what loins are, right? And it says gird the loins of your mind. What does that even mean? Well, what that means is back in that day when guys would get ready to go out to battle, they would put on what was necessary to go out to battle. Nowadays, we don't have a whole lot of battle. Well, that makes sense, except for when you get into the sports world. Today, there's a football game on. Guys will go into that locker room and to prepare for battle. They will gird up their loins, won't they? A lot of them wear jock straps. Why? Because they are getting every part of themselves ready to go and do battle in a fierce and ferocious and barbaric way. They need to go out ready knowing that there is a battle on hand. And so Peter is actually saying something that would have been startling too. gird up the loin of your mind because you are preparing for a battle that's about to take place. He says, be sober minded. Don't be so carried away and drunk with other thoughts and things, your mind needs to be on the right place. So get ready for battle and think about this. And this is what he tells you to think about. He said right there. To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what are we using to prepare our minds? What are we sobering up to concentrate so hard on? What are we setting our hope fully on? It's on the grace of Jesus, the full grace of Jesus. There can be nothing else that crowds your life to help help you. 
It's just Jesus. And when you're undergoing persecution and life is hard and there's trials and you're doubting, what is the thing that's going to help you? It's not going to be all the little trinket religions that we try to implement into our life. It's going to still be the full grace of Jesus for each and every day and moment of your life. So set your mind on that. It's grace of Jesus. It's that amazing grace we always sing about. Now, that sounds great. We would all raise our hands when we sing that hymn. But let me tell you where this battle is going this morning. I don't know how many of you are Star Wars fans, maybe not any of you, but let me describe to you something that happened in Star Wars. See, uh, in Star Wars, there's obviously the representation of the good and the evil. On the good side, you have these these warriors that use what's called the force. And that's all kind of a gimmicky way of of using something very powerful. But you have Luke Skywalker, right? Well, on the opposite side, you have this guy who's who you all probably all know his name. His name is Darth vader okay you probably had some trick-or-treaters coming up to your door this this year maybe who were dressed as darth vader darth vader is obviously the 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 look of evil personified in 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 a in a man a warrior an emperor of darkness well darth vader his his evil empire has created this huge enormous planet does anybody remember what that planet is any of you star wars fans it's the Death Star. I mean, how more evil could it sound? This huge planet is called the Death Star. It's this enormous, technologically advanced planet that millions of these evil empire warriors live on, and droids as well. So why am I talking about Star Wars? It's this. is because when Luke Skywalker and the people of, of good go to do battle... They've been firing lasers and all kinds of things to this big death planet for so long. But they finally realize when they look at the schematics, there's one way to defeat that. And so Luke Skywalker and his other friends from the rebellion, they get in their uh, jet fighters and they fly towards the Death Star. And they've they've learned from the schematics that they have to go down and deep into the uh, this one uh, crevasse, this canyon. They're flying their planes and now there's enemies shooting at them. They're going down and they know that they have to get to the very end of this channel. We're at the end. There is this opening. There is this vent that, that if they could just get to that vent and fire their weapons down into that vent, that that would lead all the way down from that vent penetrates all the way down into the core of the Death Star. If they could just hit that, it would penetrate and it would take out the core of the Death Star. And so they go and they do it and it's a tough fight, but their mind is set fully on what they need to do. They go and they strike that vent. It goes down and destroys the Death Star. And the reason I bring that up today isn't because I love Star Wars. I'm kind of so-so on Star Wars. But to give you the imagery of this, if we're going to talk about the grace of Jesus and perpetuate that as what is, what is ours in order for eternal life and our hope set on Jesus Christ, then when we go and do battle and gird up our loins, we have to make sure we're doing battle against that which is the Death Star and not just shooting lasers at the outside. We have to go right to the heart. We have to get to the center of things. And that this morning is going to stir some of us up. It's going to cause us to flare up and be a little agitated. But that is good because God is wanting us in this battle again to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus. Because that's it for us, folks. Jesus' grace. That's it. That's is what saves. We don't got any Luke Skywalker or some some force with a, a, a lightsaber that's going to come and help us. It's just Jesus and his grace. So he goes on and says this as obedient children do not be conformed 
to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, that seems a little bit scary to me. Because the word holiness means absolutely no sin to do things perfectly and completely without wickedness. So this says, set your mind fully on the grace of Jesus. And now you strike out and ignore the the former passions you had when you loved just to be king of your life and do whatever you want. And be absolutely holy as he is holy. Anybody good at that? No. Why? Because it takes a full dependence still on the grace of Jesus to accomplish that. And that's where it comes to us just having to do that battle. See, what ends up happening in this thing we call Christianity is when we came to the altar the first time, we said, I want the grace of Jesus and please forgive me of my sins. Jesus comes and he washes you and he starts that good work. And then you get on in your religious life, doing your Christianity. And there becomes this perpetual guilt back to you. Sometimes it says, if you don't do X, Y and Z. then God's not going to love you. You won't be good enough for him. You won't somehow be seen as clean in your eyes. And now you've abandoned the grace of Jesus and now put yourself into a place of religion and trying to do it yourself. And guess what happens when that happens? The beginning of the end. It's it's religiousness. It's a spirit of religion that will grip you and strangle you. And when you say, but I'm I've got to be holy. He just said, be holy. You can't be holy apart from Christ. It's Christ in you. And as he does his things in you and as he continues to to be that force in you, he is your holiness. You can't be holy apart from Jesus. It's just him. And he will lead you into doing those things and he will have you do good deeds and good works but it's never to earn your salvation. It's because of your salvation. You were doing it because you now have this godly fear of him. That says, I respect him. I love him. He's my king and I will serve him freely. And that's quite differently than what happens in the religious pressure that happens to us in. In just doing religion. Here it continues on and says this. And if you call on him, this is verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, even as he comes and says, you be holy as God is holy and and God doesn't judge impartially. He's going to hold us accountable for the things that we do. But then he goes on and says this. And so don't apply yourself. Don't keep trying to fight this fight the way that your forefathers did. Now, he's talking to a lot of people who grew up very religious. There were a lot of Jews that were sprinkled into the crowd that he's writing to. And how religious were Jews? Very religious. They were given a law. We read it, the Old Testament, all these things that they were supposed to do. A lot of times we'll see the Ten Commandments listed somewhere. Or they had certain ways that they were to go to the temple and do the sacrifices and, and, and operate through the feasts and how they were to um, help their bodies in the way just even medically they were supposed to go about it. But it was the law. And they thought, well, if we do all those things... We will make ourselves holy. That was that was what the Christians had inherited from their forefathers. And Peter says, that's not how it works. You don't help yourself just by doing a bunch of rules. 
That's not what God is desiring. That's not what is precious to God is you doing it for yourself, but Christ doing it through you. And he reminds us then. You you were ransomed from your sin. By doing good works. Jason didn't do that. Judy didn't do it. Lois didn't do it. Ryan didn't do it. Nobody has been able to do holiness. You know, Peter knew this really well. We've talked about how he was a man full of zeal and fervency and trying to do the right thing. But he would get it so wrong because he wasn't depending upon the grace of Jesus. He was depending upon his own zealousness. And so it would get him into trouble. And so I think it's significant that this man who often tried by his own energy and zealousness would finally say it wasn't from my zealousness and it wasn't from the law and my works and the futile ways of our forefathers that got me out of the sin. It was by the precious blood of Jesus. Sometimes I hear the word precious and it seems kind of hollow to me because of old, old times when people say, well, isn't that precious? You know, that makes it sound like it's just something that grandma would put on the table. It isn't that precious. Something cute. That's not the way Peter is using it, though. I mean, it is something that I think grandma should put on the table. It is something to behold. And it is something that your grandma maybe lived out. But the precious blood of Jesus, that preciousness means it's more valuable than anything else. It sets itself apart from anything that would say it's a value to save you or to help you in this everyday life of doing what is holy before God. There is one thing, and it's this thing that has value above all else, and we call it precious. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Set your mind fully on the grace Of Jesus Christ and that precious blood that bought you. But how easily then we turn to our works. See, your works, that wasn't the plan. God had this plan that he worked out ever before you and I stepped on this earth. Ever before human beings were created. In fact, if we go on, it says this. This is how special this plan was that he was going to pay with Jesus' blood. Verse 20 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What that says is before the foundations of the earth, that means when the earth was created and all the universe and all the heavens that you can see before that stuff was ever created, that Jesus Christ had already been appointed to be the savior. So when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve, he already knew that they were going to sin. He already knew before you were born that you weren't going to be good enough. And yet Jesus said, I am going to go and die. I was appointed to go and die for their sins. And it goes on and says, as a result of what Jesus has done for you, you now have the opportunity to have faith and hope in God. It's all because of Jesus. How precious is he? He is everything for us. Everything. The hard part about it is we get caught up in the religion. We get caught up in things that we think will help us out. So sometimes we do things that have a very religious look to it. And yet it's empty before God. It's not actually precious to him. One of the earliest accounts of this in the scriptures is after Adam and Eve's sin, they've been cast out of the garden. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. They came and they both brought sacrifices to the Lord. Remember that? 
Cain brought one. Abel brought the other. They both brought sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Now, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, it was accepted because of Abel's faith. He just trusted God and his grace. That's what that means. And he brought it out of this loving response. Here's my sacrifice, Lord. I, I know that I really don't have anything to give. This is, this is the work of my hands, and I just love you for how you love me. That's what that means. And Abel was like, here's my, here's my sacrifice, Lord. But Cain... Cain brought a gift and he brought a sacrifice that says the Lord rejected his sacrifice. That when he brought it, he didn't bring it rightly. Even though he was doing a religious thing, he came to that place of offering a sacrifice before God. But it was not precious. It did not pay for his sin because Cain was just doing religion. See, they did something that was actually very similar. They both brought sacrifices. The difference was their heart. The difference was one was applying his heart to the grace of Jesus and just saying, I can't do it. I need your grace. That's what faith is. The other was saying, well, if I just check off this box. God will love me. He'll love me more. He'll accept me and I can go on my merry way. But he couldn't go on his merry way. And because the religion didn't help his daily statue before God, it says that he actually was downcast, that he was sad and he was angry. And God told him, if you don't, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Basically, if your heart before me is where it needs to be, won't you experience my love? Won't you then experience my grace? And this so ate at Cain that he was upset at God, but then he went out and took his frustration on his fellow man, not just his fellow man, his brother. And that was the first murder that ever happened. He went and killed his brother, but it started because of, of his religion. And it wasn't what was precious in God's sight. Later on, we find the same thing happened. Peter would have witnessed this interaction because it's in the book of Mark. Mark writes the book of Mark from all the things that Peter told them happened during those three years Jesus was alive. Well, it says, Katie and I were just reading this last night, where one time the disciples came and they were eating, but they didn't ceremoniously wash their hands. See, the Jews had so much religion that they didn't even just hold to the Old Testament law, but they added more rules to it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these religious gurus would add more rules. And so one of the rules they had was that you had to wash your hands real special. It wasn't one of those ones where you actually cleansed your hands with 20 seconds of soap and warm water. It's one of these ones where you'd kind of just dip it in a little thing and and kind of show God, see, I'm clean. And so it says that his disciples had come in and they hadn't really washed their hands. all. They just went to eating. And the religious leader said, Jesus. How is it that your disciples can go on eating yet their hands aren't even clean? Jesus. Basically, what they're saying is, how can they not do what we expect religious people to do? And still be right before God. How, how do you explain that, Jesus? If you're from heaven, how do you explain that these guys aren't doing what's required to be holy? And Jesus' response to them is this. He says, in your traditions, you disregard the word of God and the commandment that says, honor your father and mother. And instead, what you do is you tell a man, hey, the money that you should give to your mom, dad to help them in their retirement, to care for their needs like you're supposed to to honor your father, and mother. Don't give them that money. Actually, give that money to God. That's going to look good to God. The word there that he uses is Corbin. It doesn't mean much to us, but what it meant was this money. You should reserve that for God because God really wants that money. 
So these people were robbing their mom and their dad for a show of religion to say, God, look how good we are. And Jesus says, as a result of your traditions, your religion, you are disregarding the word of God. You don't know the grace of God. And I wonder how much I do that. I'm not a Pharisee and I haven't killed a brother yet. How many times in my struggle to try to earn God's love or to get myself up to a, a peak of spirituality or out of the depths of suffering, do I do something in my day to try to earn God's love for me? But this is where God comes in to the Death Star and he comes into the very middle of it and he needs to destroy what is keeping us from the precious grace of Jesus. And for a lot of us today, what we would like to do is call the Death Star Congress that won't pass a budget. We'd like to call it maybe the people that that we're afraid of out in the parking lot that might be stealing stuff out of our cars today. Because that's been happening at churches lately. We might call it the, the drunks. We might call it the prostitutes. We might call it all these things in the world, but, but definitely not me. But listen to me today. What the scripture told us was prepare your mind for action so that you would set your hope fully. Those guys out there, they need that grace. The Congress, we need to pray for them. But this morning, what God is going after is your core. He's going for you. He wants to destroy your fleshly religious demand that you would do what's necessary to earn God's love. My friends. You will die that way. That is the evil empire of the world and your flesh trying to creep back towards God's grace. And yet we allow it to slip in in so many ways. One of the things that the Jews struggled with was their place of worship. Jesus had even said, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Because they called that place their house of worship. Now, God had made very clear that that wasn't going to be his house. He says in Isaiah chapter 66, he says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so the temple went away. That supposed house of God went away. But the scripture said that. Those who tremble at his word and what does the word say? Jesus said, destroy this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus is the cornerstone. And we'll read this later in first Peter, the cornerstone of the house of God. And what he means is not these walls that we are sitting in today, this building that we come to with a name on the front, the building and the house that he's calling to is not a structure built with wooden bricks, silver or gold. If you are in Christ, you are the house of God. It's actually a misstatement when we come into this place and say, welcome to the house of God. Welcome to the house of God this morning. That's not actually correct. We're in a building. You are the house of God. Amen. You're it. Now, why I want to make that distinction is this. In all the various sorts of religiousness that we do, one of the things that people make it easiest to fall into the religion hole in is to check off. I've been to church. I've been to the house of the Lord. I've gone there, I've done that. 
Friends, that's not what's precious to the Lord. You know, what's precious is the blood of Jesus that was for you. And he came to destroy the death star of religion that's in your heart. And that by his grace, you might be called into his family and also be made into his house, into his household that's filled with his spirit. And we have opportunities to use a building. This is a tool. There's things that we have that are tools. This right here, this is a tool. But when we perpetuate those types of things as have-tos, there goes religion. And I know that hurts some this morning. And I know that's not the, 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 the fault of everybody who's present or who calls himself Christian. Because we all have those little things that we'll revert to. Say, if I do this, God will love me more. But friends, you will never experience the fullness of God's grace. If you don't cast off what is religion. And cling to the precious blood of Jesus. Let me let me give you a visual description of what it looks like to cling to religion. If you have had kids at any time and you take them to the playground. They go out and they play in that playground. And as they venture off among all the toys, there's a certain amount of. of um, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, positivity and and eagerness and um, they just think they can do everything right. And so the child will go out there and they'll start horsing around, getting on the playground equipment, but it never fails that at some certain age, while, while you're there with your child, your child will climb up onto some sort of bar structure. And while they're on that bar structure, they'll be clinging there and suddenly they will look over their shoulders and they'll say, help! Have you seen that look? And they cling there and there's absolute panic and fear in their eyes. And as a parent, you go over to that bar structure and there's some that I don't I wouldn't go on those bar structures, but they're there and I'm going to help them. So there's some that will arch over the top and they'll be on there and they're panicking, and they're gripping on and their eyes are full of fear, the wrong kind of fear. And the parent comes over and even without even trusting them, uh, touching them, the parent will say, trust me. You've, you've got to release your death grip. Because it's not helping you. You're not moving backwards. You're not moving forward. You're not coming towards me. To get you to safety, I need you to trust me right now. So what I'm going to need you to do is first understand that I'm right here underneath you. I'm, I'm always here for you. Now I want you to take your hand and release your death grip and put it on the next bar. And now take your foot and put it on the next bar. And what's beginning to happen is the child is releasing from what they thought was helping them, but they were standing still. They would stay there. They would die. They wouldn't need anymore. They would freeze to death in the winter. They needed to move. And the parent comes over and says, I'm right here. Trust me. It's that faith we talked about last week. Now move your hand. Now move your foot. I'm right here. I can see where you need to go. Trust me in this. 
And that operation, when you're doing what the parent asks you to do towards health and life, and they're right there for you, that's, that's that relationship. That's grace. That's being with Christ. But being filled with fear and religion, that's not it. Peter is addressing a people that are undergoing suffering and trials and torture. But it's no different than what he would address for you who are undergoing much in your life. The doubts and despair, the confusion, the anger. Sometimes the, the thought of being insignificant before God. You know how I know that he sees you as being significant? Is because our scripture said this morning, before the foundations of the world, that he already chose Jesus to come and die for you. So Peter says, if if God has given the precious blood of Jesus, his son, on your behalf. Why would you go trust anything else? Trust him. Know his love for you. Know that it's not about checking off the boxes. But when he tells you to move your hand and move your foot, do it. When he tells you to train up and gird your mind, the loins of your mind, do it. But it's always going to be on Jesus. It's always going to be focused on his grace. And you know what that'll do in the end? That'll bring you that joy and hope and peace that many of you are longing for even today. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for going right after our hearts. This isn't a science fiction space story. This is, this is reality. This is you coming to destroy what's inside of us that could do us harm, and that is any amount of our own effort Try to make you love us. And so, Father, that today we ask that you would help us to remain focused on the grace of Jesus. That we would just be plunged into that grace. This morning, Lord, there may be people who have never experienced that. And I ask, Lord, that if you are calling them by your spirit, that today might be the day that they let go of their death grip and just say, Lord, save me. And I pray that today they would experience the precious blood of Jesus going into their core and destroying that which was wicked and cleansing what needed cleaned and putting them into the house of God. We pray, Lord, then that we would not play house, that we would not bring religion to the table, that we wouldn't go back way back to our ancestor, Cain. And try to do things that wouldn't be pleasing to you at all. Rather, we pray that we would listen to your spirit and abide by your word. And that we would please you, not through our own works, but by the works of Jesus through us. And it's in his name we pray.